welcome to the American Compass podcast. I'm Oren Cass, Executive Director at American Compass, and this is everybody's favorite niche new right realignment conversation, talking policy shop. I'm joined as always by American Compass's Policy Director, Chris Griswold, and we are especially excited to bring in new contributor to the podcast, Policy Advisor, Gabby Rodriguez. Chris, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Gabby, welcome. Thank you for having me. Really excited to join the team after hearing um, Chris's wonderful conversations for so many months. We we should warn listeners that while Gabby's being nice about it, the truth is that Chris is about to be sent away for a period of time, in part due to the poor bill naming he's brought to this conversation. And so... This there's, is, a, there's a podcast re-education uh, center to which I'm being assigned that's this right. summer. He will be back better than ever in the fall. But in the meantime, Gabby will be leading these conversations with me. And so this is the smooth and tasteful transition from the old to the new. If I just may be permitted briefly to brag about my colleague and pump her up to our listeners, uh, you can hear her already on the Dynamist podcast taking – DC's libertarians to school about maritime policy. You really should take give it a listen. Um, she is living rent free in the heads of many a libertarian, and I'm very excited by that. That is a key task here at American Compass, and it allows us to do what we do on a very thin budget. Gabby, why don't you tell us what we're here to talk about today? Sure thing. Um, well, we are here to discuss how to reduce financial engineering. Uh, mostly by focusing on banning stock buybacks and repealing the business interest deductibility. Terrific. So it is a two-for-one, ban stock buybacks, eliminate the special tax treatment of interest payments. Um, this is a nice wonky subject. Give us a little bit more on, on, on why we need to understand this and do something about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, we're all fans of capitalism here, and we know that it works when firms can raise capital and invest in the real economy while providing reasonable returns to their investors. But we're at a point where you essentially have American firms that are failing to channel capital towards productive ends. You know, they focus on shareholder profits. Um, you know, doing stock buybacks is a form of bumping up their returns without any real investment in the economy and assets and physical things. So you end up having American workers exposed when firms pursue this sort of financial engineering. So stock buybacks can manipulate stock prices. You can overleverage businesses and increase systemic risk. You can essentially just make sure that you pump out as much money as you can from a firm before ensuring that it shutters and leaves workers in the lurch. All right, well, Chris, I'm prepared to rail against either of these practices, but I'll let you take your choice of one to start with, and I'll pick up whatever's left. Well, you know, I, I, I would like us to take a judicious step back quickly before we get into the specifics of both of these and talk about why we're talking about both of these together, because these are discrete, separate policy ideas. Um, and the reason we're talking about both of them is exactly what Gabby started to just talk about, which is the way in which American capitalism is failing to work in a healthy way to the detriment of workers and, and communities and industrial strength. Um, and so, you, you know, Gabby, you started talking about share buybacks, stock buybacks. Do people call them share purchases? Did anyone ever do that? Stock buybacks, I think, is yeah. – I call them share buybacks, which is apparently impermissible. So you, yeah, you we're, do you. We're going we're gonna to do stock buybacks. Um, but similarly, you know, you talked about how that that uh, encourages um, malinvestment and and you know maladjusted financial behavior. Um, but the business, uh, the deductibility of business interest does the same thing. 
by giving a tax advantage to debt-fueled strategies as opposed to equity-based strategies, um, we are, by our policy, incentivizing the corporate sector to over-leverage, which it does. Um, And Orrin, you've written a lot about this and the dangers of that and the systemic risk that that introduces to workers particularly. Um, But that's the relationship. These are two examples of ways in which our current policy regime encourages and incentivizes and permits this type of um, maladjusted behavior that is not, in fact, healthy capitalism. Yeah, that's a good point. And and it's worth, in a sense, I will see you're taking a step back and take a step <laughs> further back to just reiterating what, what we want to see happening in, in the economy, how capitalism is supposed to work. Because I think one thing that um, you know, populists, especially on on the left, tend to get very wrong is to just see finance or financial markets as somehow inherently a bad thing, right? It's it's outrageous that these people are are making money on money in a sense, and and it's important to say that financial markets are a good thing. It's a, a critical function in a market economy is taking the capital that that savers have accumulated and deploying it productively through investment, and so. We rely on well-functioning financial markets to accumulate that capital and then find those companies that are going to do productive, profit-generating things and give them that capital to invest. And when they do that, they should get a return back on it and, and the savers should should obviously benefit. We, we want to see all of that happen. Um, the problem that we see in our economy in recent decades is that that's not what financial markets are actually doing anymore, that – the, the real economy that in, invests and employs and builds is actually giving capital back to the financial market faster than the financial market invests in the real economy. Uh, and so, which, which, by the way, means that they've got to pay for that somehow, right? Where they're cannibalizing their existing operations to, to do that. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And so – um, you know, exactly as, as Gabby started, the, the implication of that is you, you don't see what you want to see in the real economy for, uh, for workers, for communities, for the nation ultimately, even as you do see measures of profit and return on investment and so forth increasing. Uh, and so looking at, at policies that we've chosen that actually encourage that sort of behavior and, and figuring out how to shift to policies that actually cut the other way and say, no, we we really do have a substantive preference for seeing investment in the real economy over cannibalization of the real economy um, is, is a, a critical place for policymakers to focus. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are a couple of pretty notable cases where you ended up having firms that prioritize, you know, their shareholders and disgorging capital with pretty disastrous consequences. Um, I know here at American Compass, we've all followed the case of Boeing pretty closely. We had a recent, you know, Airbus case study released. Um, and you actually had a point where Boeing was pouring $30, billions of, $30 billion into stock buybacks during the 737 MAX's development. And that was a pretty critical moment where the company could have chosen to invest more in ensuring that its software and its R&D were done properly to ensure you had a functioning product. And instead, partially because of that focus on, you know, just a very financialized vision for the firm, you ended up with record profits for years while turning out a product that ended up falling from the skies. 
Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, another one is if you look at Intel as compared to TSMC, you see a very similar pattern where just as Airbus was um, allocating relatively more of the profit it was generating back into investment while Boeing was flinging it back to to the financial market investors, you see the same thing with Intel allocating its profits that way while a TSMC was focused much more heavily on capital expenditure. Um, and, you know, for me, it raises a point um, that that our good friend Julius Krein, editor of, of American Affairs, had, has made especially well, which is that, you know, the case for share buybacks, if you say, well, why on earth are are these companies doing this? What you will hear our market fundamentalist friends say is, well, this is just efficient. What the companies are saying is they have no productive use for the capital themselves, so let's give it back to investors and they can go do something better with it. Um, but it is both empirically not the case that the companies that were <laughs> giving giving all this money back didn't have anything better to do with it. We, in fact, see what their competitors in other countries were doing with it and that by virtue of not investing, they've lost out ultimately for themselves, but more importantly for workers, for innovation, for for the American economy. Um, and the point that Julius makes, and, and this goes back to sort of the premise of capitalism, is that the whole point, in a sense, of capitalism and the way that we support and encourage corporations is that we believe that they are going to the, do the best job investing capital. And if you get to the point, you know, buybacks now exceed a trillion dollars a year. If you get to the point where you have the corporate sector saying, we just can't think of anything useful to do <laughs> with with a trillion dollars as investment declines, as our lunch gets eaten by foreign competitors, we just can't think of anything to do with a trillion dollars. So here you go. Very expensive failure of imagination. It's a it, trillion dollar <laughs> failure of imagination. That's for sure. And, and, and the premise is, well, we're going to give it back to these investors who are going to turn it around and invest it somewhere else. Um, which is a remarkable kicking the can down the road and and just empirically does not, in fact, lead to it being invested somewhere else. No, and right. It's, it seems important to call out the bluff here, to continue your, your poker analogies about raising. Oh, that was my, my analogy about seeing analogy. and raising. No, you, you Let's know. speak to our progressive friends for a minute and name well, this no, thing. <laughs> I'm going to name a concern that I would like to center in this conversation, um, which is this myth of – you know the the argument that you just outlined that that firms will reinvest this in some more efficient way. What is actually happening is financial assets are just being traded in a perpetual circle, and that that capital doesn't fall in down into the real economy. Um, business investment is down; it has been declining for a while. That's the reality of the case. So, just as you say, to to name that explicitly, I think is actually important, and not let the market fundamentalists get away with an argument that doesn't describe reality. Um, and if this capital, in fact, does not fall down into the real economy, which it is not, um, the industrial base, the kind of thriving local ecosystems on which workers depend, on which our national industrial strength depend, they all they all suffer. That That is the, the long-term consequence of believing that myth rather than being willing to describe reality and, and do something about it. And to your point about financial markets not being inherently bad, it is the job of policymakers to make sure that the constraints within which the financial sector operates are conducive to these positive outcomes and not leaving wide open these avenues for, um, frankly, harmful and, and destructive behavior. 
Yeah, so let's let's sort of tie a bow maybe on on the buyback discussion, and then we'll flip over to the the interest deductibility one. Um, Gabby, what is it what does it take to actually ban these things? Do we need to invent some complex new regulatory structure that no one has ever thought of before? Yeah, so this is actually a pretty straightforward fix. Um, there is something that Congress could do, which would be directing the SEC to repeal Rule 10B18, um, which is a relatively new addition that came around in 1982 that legalized corporations trading in their own stock. So prior to this, we had you know capitalism chugging along pretty much fine. The investment uh, functioned the way it should. Well, and this is a key point that, in fact, the default is that stock buybacks are illegal. <laughs> well, no, yeah. and, and, and then, to, Gabby, to your to your point, you know, prior to to 1982, this was considered a form of like insider trading and stock price manipulation, right? Which is, which it, it is, it, which, right? And and then you know the SEC, as 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 you point out, gave it a safe harbor, but it's just mind boggling that. This is, in fact, a on like legal terms, a form of insider trading that we just decided to be okay with. Um, and Gabby, I think you're 100 percent right that we should not be holding our breath for the SEC to like get righteous and decide to do this themselves. Congress, I think you're absolutely right. Congress needs to needs to take action and and step in and and see to it that it that it is repealed. And I so I want to say one more thing about buybacks before we we flip to interest deductibility, which is. You know, the other argument that that you will hear on this topic that is at once correct and sort of entirely makes our point is that there's no problem with stock buybacks. Buybacks are just one way to return capital to shareholders just like dividends. So why get upset about stock buybacks if they're no different? To which the quite answer, quite obvious answer is, well, if they're no different, then why do we need them? And when you ask that question, you will suddenly hear a number of reasons that, well, we actually need stock buybacks for this and that reason and all the reasons that corporations do prefer to return capital to shareholders in this way. It actually is tax advantaged. It actually gives corporations a lot more flexibility, including in the manipulation of their share price. You can juice your stock-based compensation. It's not a bad perk on the side. (laughs) It's less. It is less transparent in in terms of what is actually going on and with the capital. Is it, is it not the case? And 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 I I forget the numbers. So if someone can rescue me, I appreciate it. But that that stock buybacks significantly outnumber, or I don't know if outnumber is the word, but are, are done in significantly higher proportion than than dividends. Yes, at, at, yeah. at the moment, that's correct. And so we we would entirely grant the argument that stock buybacks. Um, do the same thing as dividends and suggest that for that exact reason, there's no reason to have this additional mechanism that seems to clearly not be working the way it should. And by all means, let's return to the model that, as Gabby said, seemed to serve American capitalism just fine for a very long time, in which you return capital to your shareholders by paying a dividend as was truly always intended. You know, back when Boeing made planes that could fly. <laughs> back, of, back when yeah, Intel when Intel developed the semiconductor, when Boeing just developed the 747, it's, yes. it's incredible what, what and, capitalism can And achieve. by the way, just to get on this topic again, Gabby was being unreasonably modest when she said we had a case study come up. She wrote a fantastic case study that we put out, and you should all take a look at it. Are we ready for interest deductibility? Let's Br- get bring into it. it. All right, I I want to I want to say one thing in in sort of laying the groundwork here, which I, I think is just 
worth clarifying because it's it's a somewhat subtle point in just what is going on in both corporate capital structures and and therefore the tax code, um, which which helps understand what's what's going on here. If you think about how a business operates, it does whatever it does in its operations. It generates some amount of profit, and then as we've been talking about, it can reinvest that in the business, it can return some of it to shareholders. The key is that if you want to return capital to shareholders as a dividend, that's not considered an actual business expense. So you have to pay tax on your profits, and then the what's left after tax is something you have to give back. And what Congress did in, in the tax code is to say, well, we're going to treat interest payments differently. We're going to treat interest payments as one of the expenses of operating your business. And so you get to uh, subtract those interest payments from your profit before you calculate what's left to give to shareholders. And the reality is that both, both debt, borrowing money to fund the business, which you pay for through interest, or equity, receiving investment from shareholders, which you pay back through dividends, those are just two ways to to finance the business. And yet when you say, well, repaying interest, we're going to do pre-tax in a tax-favored way, paying dividends, repaying shareholders, we're going to do post-tax, you make it relatively much more attractive to borrow money and repay it through interest as opposed to receiving investment and repaying it through dividends. Um, and, and the problem is that actually – Debt has a lot of disadvantages when when you think about how businesses operate. The biggest one being that uh, you don't have any flexibility in how and when you pay it back. And so, when you actually take money from investors uh, as as equity, the the premise is that you have that to operate the business as you want, and and it is really in your discretion when you have profit that you are able to repay it. When you have debt, you have to pay it back first, but before you do anything else. And if you don't, you're bankrupt. And so when you think about, for instance, some of the problems that that private equity introduce, they come exactly from this, from this situation where as a private equity firm going in and acquiring a company, what, what you do in a lot of cases, the, the term leverage and leveraged buyout means you use a lot of debt to fund the purchase of the company – so you have to put in less of your money to do it, but now you've committed to making all of these interest payments, and those, if the company isn't doing well, can really affect its ability to operate. And so the, the reason that, that this fight is important is because if you'd say, we, frankly, we might want to prefer equity to debt, but certainly if we don't see debt as better than equity, we shouldn't be giving businesses an incentive to fund themselves with the debt that introduces this inflexibility and risk. Well, and to steal a phrase from our market fundamentalist friends, this is policy picking winners and losers in terms of corporate strategies and putting its thumb heavily on the scale in a way that really does have these detrimental effects. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and one thing to, to look at that's that's notable in this respect is that, you know, TICJA, the, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act 2017, actually makes a positive step on this one. It, it limits the extent that to which you can, um, you can deduct interest. And so it's important to say there's not some sort of 
free market, pro-growth, tax-cutting view that says uh, you you do want interest to be deductible. In fact, it is an, an unfortunate yeah. artifact that I, I think people recognize ideally would be addressed, and and we just need to go a lot farther than we've gone. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And and there's a, a whole separate conversation to be had, and you can go listen to it if you check out our pro-worker bankruptcy reform podcast and and our. Uh, written work on that subject about the dangers to workers and communities when businesses pursue this highly leveraged um, strategy. Um, and we don't have to get into all of that now, but just, just to to emphasize the, the reality that, I mean, I, I believe it's um, uh, 10 times, is that right? That firms in a, in a highly leveraged buyout situation, firms are 10 times more likely to go bankrupt, which might be fine for the the firm that has a huge portfolio of all these investments, but not fine for that particular community relying on that particular firm that isn't there anymore. And then it takes a long time to, to bounce back from. So it's not a theoretical, abstract kind of exercise um, that we're talking about. The the real world consequences on the ground are are, are quite serious for, for working families. Um, even as the you know financial sector is is doing pretty well by pursuing these 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 strategies that that mitigate its own risk while passing that risk that systemic risk that they're introducing passing it down to uh, to to workers and communities. So, what does it look like to do something about this? Um, well, you could just amend the tax code to eliminate the deductibility. It's pretty standard. We do all sorts of tax code tweaks and nips and tucks throughout the year. So. It would be a pretty straightforward thing for Congress to seize the initiative and charge ahead. And and to, to Orrin's point, uh, we've already started to do that. The last True. time we did a big tax package, and we're coming up on 2025. There's a whole bunch of stuff Congress is going to have to do on textures specifically. Um, so the timing seems ripe to to do for Congress to do what you're what what Gabby is telling it to do. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the portion of the program where we name our bill. We uh, This is going to be a single bill, both uh, eliminating the deductibility of interest and reverting to the pre-1982 status quo in which stock buybacks are not permissible. Um, I'm actually going to go first here. I, I wanted to sort of ease, ease Gabby in, especially not kind of drop something incredible that uh, that that nobody could match. Um, I would just like listeners to acknowledge what you already clearly know by this point, which is that if Orrin is volunteering to go first, he knows it's a subpar product and is trying to – I mean this is an artful way of turning his his lack of in, you know investment in this exercise into a, a noble act. This well, is not – don't buy it. Let me say that, that in fact it's not even an acronym because I had exactly what I wanted to name the bill – and it had a lot of whys in it. And as anyone who's gone through the acronym exercise knows, lots of words have the word, the letter Y, but not a lot of words start with the letter Y. It's a real red flag in the bill naming process. But I feel passionately that this bill should be called the Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is Act, mm. Uh, mm. both directly asking uh, our capitalist friends to put their money into the real economy and productive investment and more metaphorically asking them to show that they believe capitalism 
canon should work the way we all know that it needs to. So I have no acronym for you at all, but the Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is Act of 2023. Um, I am going to claim a win, which is I've been advocating for you to be more open to the non-acronym approach for quite some time. And I, I welcome you to the community of, of those of us who prefer non-acronym bills. Thank you. I feel called in, not called out. <laughs> Gabby, what do you got? Yeah, so I, I'm going to be upfront and admit I had some uh, help with this one. I've been playing around with uh, GPTs. I'm sure some of you have been as well. Mm, yes, this is a discourse that we have had. This is disappointing. No, no. I, we, we support I, productivity improvements in, in you know, the this workforce. Is a, this is a fair point. This is a fair, but we do write about how the automation scare is 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 a misunderstanding of the, the nature of the case. But this under, also underscores the degree to which efficiency is not the only end to which we should aspire, and that the artisanally handcrafted acronym has an inherent value that one produced <laughs> even effectively the, the, the automation or, the organic built can never match. <laughs> but let's hear your mass-produced, yeah. impersonal. You know, we're giving it a shot. Um, so this is a little bit narrow, but I think Banish would be a pretty interesting mm. uh, bill acronym. Nice. So this one, at least, it just stands for um, the bill, you know, banning all non-essential individual stock holdings. And that speaks mostly to half of the problem, not the entire solution. Um, and I think if we went for a separate, you know, title addressing the financial transaction piece of it, it would have to be something, you know, snappier. Taxes don't really capture the public's attention. So maybe something along the lines of um, upholding productive investment mm. act, which is that's, not... That's really snappy. That's that's definitely going to catch the attention of <laughs> a public that's tuning out your tax bill. The UP the UP, uh, the Act? The UP Act? Maybe we could just use the as, tongue. As, as I like, like it. up act if if we want to shorten it, you know. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. All right. Well, look, room for improvement. You don't you don't want to come out of the gate too strong. I think that's that's wise of you to sandbag us a little bit. Uh, Chris, go ahead and, and show us how it's so done. So I in fact have no acronym either. I went a different direction. Um, and I apologize to anyone who I might offend uh, by this bill title, given your work history in the financial sector, some of our listeners. Um, but we were talking the other day, Oren, about how one of the ways you can think about what an, a market is for is as a mechanism to solve human problems. And that what that lets you do then is evaluate how well the market is working based on what problems it, it is in fact solving for. And you know, per our conversation today, the market seems to be solving for hedge fund bros and Wall Street bros and finance bros getting rich, and which is not – the human problem I am most concerned with at all. Um, so I, I was going for a rhyme. My bill is just called the No Bro Act. And uh, I feel like that speaks for itself and is very self-explanatory. But at the very least, it invites a conversation. It's like, hey, bro, what bill are you working on? I'm working on the No Bro Bill, bro. What's that about? Well, let me tell you. That's about stock buybacks and banning the deductibility of business interest. I feel good about myself with this bill title. Uh, I don't know how that lands for you all or for our listeners who, in fact, are or may have been finance bros at some point. But this is this is my bill title, and I'm I'm standing by it. 
Well, I think that's a perfect segue into reminding our listeners that we've asked Chris not to come back on the podcast (laughs) for a little while. Uh, But Gabby and I will be back soon with another episode of Talkin' Policy Shop on the American Compass podcast.